Border Patrol, for example, used to be part of Immigration and Naturalization Service. We were taught from day one that a big part of what we were doing was protecting the legal immigration system so that we could actually help people that really needed refugee status. We, we could literally be a place for them to go. But when you have two million people committing fraud, cutting in line in front of the people that really need it, how do you ever get to that person? Welcome back to The Kevin Roberts Show. Here's another episode we're recording in Austin, Texas, the great state capital and the great state of Texas. And we're doing this at the Texas Public Policy Foundation Conference. You know, I used to lead that organization and I'm still on the board. We're conspiring, really. Heritage and Texas Public Policy are doing a lot of work together on the border, on education reform, on your pocketbook issue. I could go on and on. But what this episode is going to be focused on is, if you live in a border state, the pressing issue. And it is the absence of a border, frankly. But as I like to say, and as I know my friend and guest will say, this issue of the border crisis is also one that affects every American. Finally, we're beginning to see more and more policymakers understand that. I'm not the expert. I'm just the guy who's going to ask the questions. And so Rodney Scott, who was once chief of the U.S. Border Patrol, so thank you, my friend, for your service to this country, is here with me. Thanks for carving out some time. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. I like how you uh, led this off about the whole country needs to pay attention to the border because nothing stays at the border. Well, it reminds me, gosh, it's hard to relate time over the last year. So much has happened in the country. But I guess a year, year and a half ago when you and I first met via phone, I called you and said, Rodney, thanks for coming on board to TPPF. And, and by extension, you're going to be invaluable to this border security coalition that TPPF founded with Heritage, as it turns out. And I said, what's the number one thing you need me to remember as I'm going out and talking to people? And it was that. It really stuck with me. You said, Kevin, to the extent that we can all be talking about this as an issue that affects all Americans, do it. So just one more plug for you before we get into some of the questions. I'll just say for our audience, if you're listening or watching this episode and you think that this is an issue that maybe gets talked about enough in the media that hopefully you don't think the following, that this isn't an issue, this is going to be the most substantive conversation on the on the topic because of Rodney's expertise. So building you up. I hope I don't let anybody down. No, man, yeah. you're, you're good. You were chief of the Border Patrol. You're all right. So let's get into just a quick, to the extent it can be quick, diagnosis of the problem. That is, I just talked about the substance and expertise you bring to this. Tell us what we may not know about the border. So I think what people, they hear today, they don't really understand uh, that the border, we gave up complete and total operational control of the border, which means literally making decisions on who and what is coming in our country. We gave that to the cartels. And it was by policy decisions. So uh, I had almost a 30-year career, started as a first line ag- front-line agent, uh, worked my way up. But I joined the Border Patrol, honestly, I really didn't even know about illegal immigration. When I joined the Border Patrol, all we talked about in Arizona at that point in time was narcotics smuggling across the border because that was the threat of the day. So all we talk about today, it seems like most of the time in the news anyways, is the illegal immigration aspect. And we lose the fact that the cartel just uses the illegal aliens to shape the border and bring in any threat that they want. Um, And they're doing it over and over again, and it's not necessary. We proved over 30 years, but really the last administration did did a lot, obviously, that we do know how to control the border and we can do it. And this administration, through policy decisions, just walked completely away from that. Um, And today we cannot tell you who or what is coming into our country. And that's by the choice of this administration. It's really scary, actually. No, it is scary. And you're you're not a guy, you know, based on 
what I know about you just as a guy, but also given your experience. In other words, Border Patrol agents don't have the luxury of doing anything other than just reading the facts, who would not be prone to hyperbole or exaggeration. I mean, that's just the, the facts. This is the, the question, Rodney. We do talk to some policymakers who I think are very forthright about this being such a policy problem, and in particular, the change that occurred from the Trump administration to the Biden administration. It's not a political comment. It's a policy reality. I'm curious, in the same way that I like to look at the impact of policy from the, the lens of everyday Americans, from the lens of everyday Border Patrol agents who are there on the border doing their jobs, you're not going to make a political statement. What was the what did that look like that that policy transition from what the Trump team was getting largely right to what the Biden administration has gotten wrong? It was really a light switch. Uh, hmm. I do. I still talk to a lot of management. I still talk to a lot of agents. A lot of actually reach out to me on social media uh, to kind of vent, if you will. Um, but you talked about doing their job. The job of the United States Border Patrol is simply to make sure that no one comes into our home without using the front door. It's kind of that simple. And the front door is the ports of entry. And, that, and they understand fundamentally that is to protect everybody in this country, including guests that are just visiting in every city, town, and state. They're not doing that today. They know that when they're stuck inside, 60 to 80 percent of them at the beginning of the shift, processing civil immigration cases, that they're just going to release these people into the U.S., they know from experience that the cartel you just did that on purpose so that they could bring in significantly big, uh, more damaging threats, if you will, to this country. But the Border Patrol agents aren't out there patrolling it. So when the Border Patrol today, for example, reports out they have about 800,000 gotaways, that's just what's been seen on camera or they've counted the footprints, but there's actual evidence to support that. There are hundreds and hundreds of miles of border right now as we speak that are not being patrolled and have not been patrolled in days. And the agents know that and understand what that really means to the country. And it's just devastating their morale. And because of that real decline in morale, I presume there's a recruitment issue. Not only a recruitment issue, but also a retention issue. So law enforcement and federal fires got a pretty good retirement system. You can retire after 20 years in service if you turn 50 or you can retire after 25 years of service at any age, but you're not mandatory to retire until you're 57. So how you measure morale a little bit is how many people are voluntarily retiring before they have to, because most agents actually really love their job, and most guys will go, the vast majority will, not, will go to mandatory. And that is not the case today. People are electing to retire early, left and right. Uh, even with all the economic stuff that you see going on today, they're still choosing to leave, leave that solid salary behind. Um, because it's, they feel like they're part of the smuggling network now, not the Homeland Security Network. You've been to the border, I know, since you've retired. And what, what, what's the scene there? I, I, I've been a few times, I guess several times, but obviously what you see and what that means to you is, is uh, far more significant because of your expertise. For the, the American or whoever's listening or watching this episode who hasn't been to the border, or at least recently during yeah. this, this crisis, I've used the term chaotic and third world, and which is not to be demeaning toward the people who are crossing the border. They're fellow humans just as important as you and me. This is about the rule of law so that, in fact, we can keep our country to be a place where people want to come. I mean, for, from the perspective of Americans, what would they see if you went to a particular spot on the southern border? So throughout my career, it has changed a little bit today. Throughout my career, we would have surges in immigration. You'll hear the current administration talk about, oh, there's been ebbs and flows and you have these surges over time. They were usually geographic, geographically specific. So if you look back even 28, 2018 and 19, uh, we had caravans coming up to San Diego. We thought it was a huge big deal. There were 2,500 people. 
in one group. A caravan. Right? A caravan. Uh, and then there was Eagle Pass. Uh, that is happening along the entire southwest border, location after location after location, from Rio Grande Valley all the way to San Diego on a daily basis. An average of about 6,000 people are in, illegal aliens, people crossing illegally into this country are encountered every day by U.S. Border Patrol. Even under the Obama administration, Secretary Johnson said if we hit 4,000 a day, that's like beyond a crisis. Now it's consistently over 6,000 a day. It, it is, it's, I would call it controlled crisis, but it's not even, or chaos, but it's not even really controlled. And then the ripple effects of that are just nonstop. Cities like Del Rio, get out of Border Patrol for a minute. Cities like Del Rio, Texas, with a population of about 36,000, a little bit below 36,000, are being expected to be able to manage 40,000 new people into their town that have no homes, no food, no lodging, nothing, every month. It's, it's total chaos. And I've always said, if you look around, I think this is true in almost any situation, chaos kills. So if you look at the border, border deaths are skyrocketing, over 700 documented border deaths that CBP documented. That's not even the state and locals. Um, just the chaos that's ensuing. This is not a humane or orderly system like this administration lies to America and tells them that it is. Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about that momentarily. It's a really important point. It, it, it suggests that this is intentional. But before we get there, I want to hang on this point of where these migrants are going. Obviously, recently in the news, the great people of Martha's Vineyard were offended that 50 illegal aliens arrived in their, in their city. There's a whole conversation about how they got there and, and suing Governor DeSantis for that. As far as I'm concerned, that's immaterial to the hypocrisy of a largely radically left city that likes to be an island. That's their right. I mean, an island to American society, that is. But this is a problem that every county and city in the United States has confronted. It's certainly just severe in the the border counties. But we're talking about 2 million people crossing illegally over this calendar year, and it's only September. You're, You're also talking about an impact that's extremely consequential. What does it look like in a random American city and county, either on the ground, you're just walking through a city, or particularly from the standpoint of municipal services? Yeah, I think it's multi-tiered. And and I like uh, what you you said about the border. I use the term concentrated. The reason we focus on the border is that's where you actually can see it visibly happening. Uh, Larger groups, one place and one time, and of course, Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, California, they're all dealing with that. But that threat stays just as significant when it goes into the country. But since it's not as concentrated in one place, it kind of gets watered down. People don't make the connection. But if there's been any fentanyl deaths anywhere in your community, that crossed the southwest border. A lot of the MS-13, the international transnational gangs, that came across the southwest border. Heroin, narcotics, or uh, cocaine. We don't grow this stuff here. Even methamphetamines, you don't, they don't really make that in the U.S. anymore. Almost all that came from Mexico. So you, your city is a border town and a city. And depending on how, how bad that situation is, where you're at, you're going you're to have a different level of concentration. But I think it touches every part, every, every fabric in this country, every city. It goes everywhere we go, whether it's, whether it's, it's economic migration that undermines our current pay structure, uh, labor laws, human trafficking is embedded in there. Actually, I want to touch on that real quick. That's another one. We like to talk about human trafficking. It makes people feel good to talk about human trafficking, even if you're in this current administration. What people don't realize is every human trafficking case ever discovered on the Southwest border or even by ICE started with a face-to-face interview where an agent 
picked up on a cue. Something just didn't seem right. And then they did an in-depth interview. That is not happening today at all because the agents are completely and totally overwhelmed. They're just being yelled at to process and release people faster. So we don't even know what's mixed in with that. And we don't necessarily know where all of that is, is going. But I can tell you what, it's not staying in Del Rio. That is certainly the case. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you a question that a lot of friends around the country have asked me, and, and I sometimes struggle to answer it because it, it takes you to a pretty dark place about the intentions of the current regime. But I'm afraid it's the case. I, I, I won't really want to know. I've not had a chance to ask you this question yet as, as we communicate about things. What's the administration trying to accomplish? I mean, what's, what is their intention? Because clearly they're doing this on purpose. This is not incompetence. No, this is clearly intentional. I've tried to avoid the speculation piece of it. I have right? to. And that's the right thing to do at a certain point in time. But I think it is a human nature to go like, what are you thinking? Um, so I'll just give you a little insight into some of the conversations I've had, because I think it varies, to be honest. So as an organization, I don't know what the administration's objectives is. I think I could fill that in. But some of the conversations I've been in are everything from we believe we're trying to help these people. And they really, despite all the evidence to the contrary, some of them believe that it's like their responsibility based on their, their faith or their background to, to be compassionate and help this individual. And they ignore the millions that it's actually devastating the process. But in their mind, they think they're doing the right thing. They're helping them. I've had conversations with others that really don't think there should be borders. And they really buy into this global, people should be able to move about wherever they want, and more people are really good than bad. And they just don't believe that we should actually have a nation. Well, they want the social services the nation provides, but they don't want any of the controls or the mechanisms that people provide. Those are the conversations I hear the most. And then some of the other conversations get into, you know, how do you stay in power and, and all that. I'll, I'll stay out of that. I'll let you fill in those blanks yeah, okay. as an organization. But those other two, I think they're almost the bigger threat um, because that's the middle. Yeah. I mean, so, it, and their decisions are not based on facts or evidence. And if you can actually get them to slow down for a minute, I've had some success at getting them to realize that when they go home every day, they close and lock their door in most, most places. And they don't think it's wrong at all to decide who and what comes into their personal home. And on a national level, it shouldn't be any different. We should have the ability, the capability, and it should not be seen as negative in any way to want to know and control who and what comes into our home. And then we can have policy discussions about what is that. But if they don't come through the front door, you never get to that conversation. Completely. And, and, and I'll follow your lead on, on avoiding the speculation. I not only respect that, I agree with it. We ultimately don't know what I've really, and my colleagues at Heritage and, and our, our mutual friends across the movement have been saying is, it's not incompetence. This this is purposeful. It may be some ignorance on the of what the reality on the ground by some young ideologues inside the administration, but from Secretary Mayorkas on down, this is intentional. What they're trying to achieve can be pretty significant, but I think the main thing is for us to be focused on policy and and how we we fix that. But I want to home in on one point. You and I have not talked about this yet, but you, you, you sort of piqued my interest when you talked about some of the faith leaders saying it's good to have open borders. We want to help people. They genuinely believe that. And as a and I'll just say, pardon me for people in the audience who aren't Catholic. I spend some time as a faithful Catholic trying to explain what 
Pope Francis sometimes says on the issue what, for example, the Catholic Bishop of San Antonio said recently, which sort of condemned political conservatives who adhere to the rule of law in this. And I just want to say for politically conservative Roman Catholics in our teaching, which is a shared teaching across Christianity and in most parts of Judaism, the rule of law is vital to a civil society actually being able to provide to the poor and the indigent. There is no way the United States can continue to do that, to, to come full circle here from a comment about a specific faith teaching that's influential on this issue. If we're going to continue to do this, we are disrupting lives. We're actually costing lives, as you pointed out, because of the human trafficking, because of the fentanyl. I'm going to stop there because I get pretty wound up about this, because people see these very thoughtful men, they see very thoughtful faith leaders from other denominations, other faiths, and they say, man, I sort of feel guilty for thinking that the United States States should protect its border. Given your experience, you know that that's actually the most humane thing to do. Correct. It really is the most humane thing. I I probably shouldn't go here, but I will. I'm not um, trying to tempt you, but I'm happy to. For no, you to go this there. is so back early back in my career, I, and I'll make it really quick. There was some protest going on at the border. I was in a, in a management position at the time, so I'm reading the reports the next day, and I saw a whole group, about 16, 17 uh, college students, that had been detained but not arrested. Um, and then when I read in a little bit deeper, the reason that we didn't arrest them, they had breached the, the, the federal uh, area. They could have been arrested for trespassing. Um, but they said, hey, we didn't, we didn't know what was going on. Our professor said he was going to give us extra credit if we came down here to the border. And it was this whole uh, justice and social – I lost the term there for a minute. But social justice. Yeah, social yeah. justice issues. And, and they had professors that were basically telling them if they supported borders, they couldn't be a Christian. It was a Christian uh, university. Um, so I started reaching out and kind of talking to more people and, get, and getting into this realm, and it's all superficial. So there's none of those arguments that actually withstand the light of day when you get two or three levels deep. Um, and I don't want to offend any of the listeners here. I, I grew up in a Nazarene church. I grew up a Christian family, and I remind people all the time. I go, when, when was the very first deportation in history ever created? Or when, did, when was it carried out or recorded, I should say? In Genesis. That's right. They violated the rules, they got kicked out of the Garden of Eden, borders were established, guards were established. And throughout most religions, there are, there are tribes, there are different communities, 12 tribes of Israel, there are walls, there are barriers, and it refers to gates and coming and going order, law and order. Yep. It, it shouldn't be as political as it is today. And I also remind them that we can't help others. It's like being on a plane, right? You can't help others unless you have oxygen yourself. So we can do way more good around the world if we can sustain this country. And one dollar goes way farther in Guatemala or Honduras than it does here. That was one thing I really appreciated about the Trump administration that gets no – and, I, and I'm, I was a non-political. I was a government employee. Which is why you're so careful about what you're saying, although you're you're right right on the target, I think. Well, I was pushed out because a lot of people on the left believe that I was a, a, a Trumpy, pro-border wall. Pro, I'm like, I'm pro-border security and stuff works. That's just all there is to it. But one of the things the Trump administration did a lot of that he doesn't get any credit for was working with all these other countries to help build up their systems. So all we did, we went to Mexico and said, hey, yo, you need to enforce your own laws. This is how it will help you as well. But this is what we're going to do to help you. Guatemala, Honduras. And we were building up meaningful, reliable asylum systems in those countries as well so that people that really needed help and needed to get away from threats could. Well, it's significantly more than the one or two that, that might get help here. To preach to the choir, I was in Guatemala about four weeks ago on a on a heritage trip. Our foreign policy folks travel around the world, but this was a, a trip really focused on 
economic development, and also border security. And the president of Guatemala, President Giamate, and his administration, to the credit of the whole legislative branch, too, of Guatemala, has been very committed, as you know, better than anybody, being a great partner with the United States. And it's one that is by adhering to the rule of law. And and what they told me is that, and we, of course, verified this, that the United States government under the Biden-Harris regime is actually not interested in the help they have to offer. And Vice President Harris, who seems to be such an expert on the issue that she says there is no border uh, crisis, has even wagged her finger literally at that administration and saying you need to get with the program. That gets us into some of the intentions that we'll save for another guest because of your expertise on the border itself. But that kind of attitude by the heads of our state, when it filters down to the ideologues who are very ignorant of the situation on the ground, creates this tinderbox, which isn't just about the border, but really is about American society. And, and you know, your metaphor about the plane, your comment about Genesis is they're, they're both apropos because what Americans sense they're losing right now as a result of this border crisis is what it means to be American. And keep in mind, as you know well, Americans are the most pro-immigrant people in the world. That, that, that's funny bringing that up. That's another thing that gets lost on these people, that border security and immigration enforcement, they forget that Border Patrol, for example, used to be part of Immigration and Naturalization Service. We were taught from day one that a big part of what we were doing was protecting the legal immigration system so that we could actually help people that really needed refugee status. We, we could literally be a place for them to go. But when you have 2 million people committing fraud, cutting in line in front of the people that really need it, how do you ever get to that person? How many people aren't getting help today because of this chaos that we've created on the border? Um, and, and people don't want to admit that sometimes or, or just acknowledge that that's fact. Yeah, it's, it's bad. So I'm going to ask you a question. I ask a lot of, of guests, really any guest who was, was implementing policy, I'm going to give you a magic wand to fix these problems. What are, from the standpoint of policy, you know, whether it's, it's high level at the, at the presidential level or on the ground in terms of kind of day-to-day tactics you would use as a border patrol agent, what are the three or four things you would change that would begin to reverse course and get us operational control of the border? Sure. It's honestly not that difficult. Um, and again, my background over 30 years, the Border Patrol was building out a strategy, trial and error. Some things worked, some things didn't. The real big thing with the Trump administration is he went to the experts and said, hey, what should we do? And then wasn't, wasn't afraid to try some things. We tried a few things that didn't work as well, but was willing to try. So what we figured out is if there are consequences to crimes, the people willing to commit that crime are significantly less, right? So one of the biggest things I would immediately do is re-implement the Remain in Mexico uh, migrant protection protocols. And all that did was flip the, the asylum process back to the way it should be. The, yes, we're going to make sure that you're in a safe place. We're not going to send you even short-term any country you're afraid of. But you don't get to roam freely about the United States until a judge has actually heard your case and, and agrees that it meets the legal definition. The minute we did that, the flow slowed down. What a lot of people don't understand is Border Patrol throughout, again, many, many decades, uh, even before I was in leadership positions, we were getting better and better at controlling the border. And every time that we took measures and slowed down the flow, that freed up Border Patrol agents to do other things. So, for example, San Diego, the border wall infrastructure that we put in place there just because it's, it's such a busy area in less than 12 miles, freed up 150 agents every 24 hours to be pulled out of that area and assigned to something else. So just pure monetary return on the investment, that's about $28 million a year in salaries and benefits every single year 
for a for like a one-time 30-year investment in this border wall infrastructure. So what did they do? They went to more remote areas, but they also started doing deep dive interviews. So we started making sure that every group that crossed, at least a couple of the people got interviewed. We documented all that and we started mapping out the cartels. And then, and I told President Trump this when I gave him the border wall presentation, we convinced him to do a see-through wall, not a solid concrete. That's another conversation for another for day. That was part of the conversation, okay. debate, argument, whatever. Um, but you'll notice the day I briefed him in San Diego, when before that it was concrete solid, after that is when he changed. And it so wasn't just changed. me, it was several other people. But, but the thing is, he listened to us. He was, he was hesitant, but he listened. Transparency. So why did I want the border wall to be able to see through? Because when we actually can see on the south side, whether it be the criminal elements, the Mexican government elements, they perform and they, they, they operate a little better. Let's put it that way. I won't get into all the corruption issues, but sure. you know where I'm going with this. Um, but, but putting the, the light of day on it. So building out that border wall, making them more effective, and then giving them information that we found that we know those people are corrupt, they took action. Those dominoes of literally just becoming more effective was dramatically changing the environment on the border. That's all that together was what was giving us the control. So I would continue to build out the border wall system to include the technology piece. And it's not political show. It literally makes every agent more effective. The other key to that, not to drag this out, was everybody talks about the physical wall. It was a border wall system. It wasn't just a wall. There was a big technology package that was going with that that includes some fiber optic cabling, but it was allowing us to kill all these dead spots, what we call radio dead spots along the border. And we were starting to issue Border Patrol agents uh, smartphones where they could track the movements of all the other Border Patrol agents, see everything that was going on live. They were getting more and more effective. And then the last uh, two things would be more legislative. We've got to close some of these loopholes long-term. So there was a Flores agreement, it was a lawsuit that, that basically forces the government to release anybody that comes over with a child after 21 days because of this judge's crazy decision. You've got to fix that because again, if you can get released into the US, if we, anytime you pr get a protected class, if you will, they're gonna exploit that. And, and that is, is still a problem. And then you just need to make sure that we actually detain people. So we can still talk about how many we let in, who, but unless you meet them face-to-face, -face, you, you have to detain people in these processes or keep them outside the U.S. Um, a consequence. So rebuild the border wall, keep building that out. Uh, the consequences are the, are the biggest piece uh, going forward. It seems that, and thank you for that list, which is, sounds ideal, it seems that until and unless we implement that, we can't, in the political and policy sphere, have a conversation about what, an efficient, transparent, kind of easy legal immigration system looks like. Correct. Why would you, let's forget about the border for a minute. If you're going to a concert, a baseball game, or Disneyland, and you just saw people pouring across the, the fence, and then even if they got encountered by a security guard, they just let them continue on their way, why would you be incentivized to pay a ticket and wait in line in a legitimate way? Um, and that's kind of what's going on today. This current administration, in a way that I've never even fathomed, has taken away every encouragement to go through the legal process that there is. And they're actually incentivizing crossing illegally because you get to cut in line in front of people. So how do we have any kind of a conversation about who we let in if you haven't even put a system in process where you're going to meet them? It's, we're not forcing people to use our front door. It's All just common gotta, sense. It's common sense. So as we begin to wrap up here, I have a couple final questions for you. One is, is about you. As, as I mentioned to you off camera, I always try to get people to tell their story for a whole bunch of reasons. One of them is 
to inspire people in the audience, especially if they're younger, maybe at the beginning of their career, to lives of service for this republic. Obviously, those of you who've been in law enforcement are particularly courageous and a real model for the rest of us. But that can be in any career, as I know you would you would say, because of your personal modesty about these things. But what was it about service in the Border Patrol before you decided to pursue that career path that was so attractive to you? And as you are now retired, reflecting on your service, what advice would you give to people in the audience who, who knows, Rodney, they may, based on your answer, decide to become a Border Patrol agent, but even if not, to give some sense of service or some life of service back to the country? So I think some of it was the way I was raised. I was uh, born in Indiana, farm kid, grew up on a farm there before moving to Arizona later, um, grew up in the church family. And I, it was just ingrained in me that it's, you know, you, you got to give back. You got to help other people. Um, patriotism was a big deal in, in our family. And then uh, getting to Border Patrol specific, though, uh, as I learned a little bit more about it in Arizona, I actually, just a little sidebar, I actually joined the Border Patrol to be a pilot. So I went to college to be a pilot. I was flying for a small corporation. And the Border Patrol, when I joined, you had to be an agent in the field for three years before you could apply to be a pilot. So that was my career plan. Um, I learned more about really what the Border Patrol did besides what I saw. Like, you know, back then it wasn't quite as on TV as much as it is now. But uh, I saw them driving around four-wheel drives or whatever. But then I realized the, the mission and how important it is. I, I didn't fully grasp it. So if you, if you like these types of jobs... I encourage you to get in and then but because once you get in, then you get to really see the real impact. And I started to see the criminals that we were taking off the streets, even if people were still getting by. And this is what I remind agents today, because they are very demoralized. Uh, they, they're not doing the job they were hired for. But I remind them, step back. Even though a lot of people are getting released, look at 78 people on the National Terrorism Watch List were taken off the streets this last year. If they weren't there, Border Patrol. Border Patrol wasn't there, they, they wouldn't be there. There's always something like that, all the criminals that are taken off the street. Um, I ultimately decided to be to stay on the line because, to be honest, it was more adrenaline. I didn't want to be the guy holding the flashlight. Even more than flying a plane. Even more. than The training, I loved learning how to fly a plane, but actually out in the field. Uh, I remember the first time I was eligible to be a pilot. I was with a group of about 50 illegal aliens on the ground, just me and my partner. and We'd been running around, rounding everybody up, and the helicopter came in with a big spotlight, and I'm like, yeah, I'm not ready to be the guy holding the flashlight yet. It's <laughs> a great story. And I, I never, I ended up just, just not going back. Um, but then I think even then the narcotics and the illegal immigration was a meaningful mission for me protecting America. But 9-11 put it over the top. So shortly after 9-11, especially when GHS was formed, I actually got pulled out of the field and asked to help set up an office for terrorism. I didn't really know anything about terrorism, never even thought about the implications in between the ports of entry. No one ever talked about it. Um, I got exposed to a bunch of intel from all these different comp uh, organizations, three-letter agencies, if you will. Um, and then it, it, it w I woke up to the little analogy that I still use today, that if you can't control who and what comes into your home, you and your entire family have no security at all. And any sense of security you have is false. It's the same on a national level, you know, and I had heard over my career all these racist allegations or whatever, but it really is that simple that if you can't control who and what comes into your home, and there's not some semblance of law and order, we, we keep going towards this anarchy type stuff, um, you can't protect your kids or their kids or the next generation. And it's our responsibility. Again, intrinsically, I was kind of taught that to, to give back, to, to do a little bit more, and that it just aligned. And then on a more shallow note, and when I'm doing recruiting stuff, I used to tell people, if nothing else worked, 
Border Patrol has more toys than almost any other. I knew you were going to say that. That's awesome. It was just a blast. You're outdoors, four wheel drives, ATVs, boats, motorcycles. I mean, it's it was on top of everything else. It was fun. It's it's important to remember. Yeah. It's a, actually a very fitting segue into my final question for you. And, and thanks for a great conversation. And it is in spite of all those challenges. I mean, you and and your your Border Patrol agent colleagues, former colleagues, probably have the greatest sense of how difficult reality is in some segments of the United States, some some geographical areas. In spite of that, why did you wake up this morning optimistic? Because I know you well enough to know that you woke up this morning optimistic. I did wake up optimistic. And I do, in total transparency, have my days, right? <laughs> Don't um, we all? Yeah. I spent eight months in the Biden administration, and especially the last few months, there were less days. I was optimistic. Um, but it's get-togethers like this. So the last couple of days here in Austin – just meeting patriots that care. And if they can't be out there on the front line, they're putting their mouth, their money where their mouth is. If they can't do that, they're actually getting involved. So one of the things I do now is I've actually been going around and speaking to lots of different groups, Republican clubs, but not just exclusively. They just happen to invite me more, uh, but almost any group that will listen. And I'll talk to them about border security, what it really is versus, versus what you see in the media and everything else. But just to actually get out and meet more and more people that care, and they're not racist, they're not xenophobic. They're the most caring people on the planet, but they want to leave this country better for their neck for the next generation than they inherited it. And they're worried that, that for the first time, probably in many generations, that might not be the case. And that gives me hope because I know I couldn't do it. I know you couldn't do it alone. Um, and there's a lot of people in the middle, I believe, that just don't know. And I really, truly believe if we stop like fighting and arguing and using catchphrases, political talking points, and just talk about it, provide some evidence. Um, and have an adult rational conversation, we can win a bunch of those people over and we can actually end up helping more of these migrants in their home countries later uh, and by not handing them over to the cartels. That's really the point. If, if we can get past talking points on, on this issue and others and really focus on the facts and be sober about what the reality is, even if we don't like the reality, I just believe, I mean, as I said earlier, call me an idealist, that we're going to fix this problem. We're going to fix a lot of other problems. And so we'll leave it there for now, although I'm sure over time we'll have you back. Rodney Scott, former chief of the Border Patrol and senior fellow at the Texas Public Policy Foundation and a friend. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me on today. Appreciate it. Thanks for watching or listening or both to this episode of The Kevin Roberts Show. I'm sure you're inspired, perhaps a little bit of dose of reality from my friend Rodney, but hopefully inspired that we are going to turn the corner on the border crisis. We are going to restore rule of law to the United States. It's just going to require each of us, as he says, to play our tiny role. Thanks for tuning in. The Kevin Roberts Show is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producer is Crystal Kate Bonham. The producer is Philip Reynolds. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and Tim Kennedy. For more information and to subscribe, please visit heritage.org.